Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Beware of Cheap Imitations Castles uh, to go through uh, news today on Manchester United, Chelsea, as well as uh, a little bit of analysis on um, United's loss to Young Boys of Bern uh, in the Champions League. Of course, here when Villain will round us off. Duncan, we start today with news uh, about Paul Pogba and his contract situation. It's our understanding that there's been a pretty major shift in the attitude of Pogba's agent and indeed the player, uh, Mino Raiola, uh, who's his representative, having stonewalled attempts by United to open negotiations on an extension to a deal that runs out next summer and that could see Pogba sign a pre-contract with another club on January the 1st, has now accepted an invitation to enter into talks. This is probably because uh, chances of Pogba finding the club he wants, i.e. Real Madrid, are fading. PSG certainly are in the mix with regards to taking him on a free transfer next summer however also uh, we believe that Raiola uh, wants basically to explore what the financial elements are because as we know uh, Mino likes his slice as the great Kaiser Duck would say Um, £500,000 a week is the figure being bandied around with regards to a new deal for Pogba. Of course, he is at the stage in his career where this may well be the most lucrative contract that he will sign in his uh, span of his career. So obviously, Raiola will want to capitalise to the very, very uh, top end and make him the second highest player at United after Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, Also, of course, with the arrivals of Rafael Varane, and Jason Sancho, the bar has been put higher. Uh, um, Ronaldo obviously is the highest paid, but asking for that amount of money no longer seems to be unusual, Duncan, with regards to a an elite footballer and someone like who has Pogba's image rights and uh, his prestigious reputation, as it were. Is he worth five hundred grand a week? <laughs> He's worth what he can achieve in the market. Um, look, Pogba and to a lesser extent, Mino Raiola, because there are issues between Pogba and Raiola, which we've, ex- we've explored on the transfer window podcast, and and there is pressure on Raiola to secure the strongest option for Pogba. But the two of them are from a a bargaining point of view in a very strong position now because the contract is in its final season. Pogba can sign for anyone in January for nothing um, as far as Manchester United are concerned. 
set the terms of his signing on fee, set the terms of his salary, choose between which other, whichever clubs are prepared to sign him. You're right to say there's interest from Paris Saint-Germain. There has been interest from Real Madrid. Um, I think there's a shift in Real Madrid's position because uh, Raiola controls Erling Haaland's transfer and Haaland is one of the two strikers that Florentino Perez wants in next summer. Now he's had to wait on Kylian Mbappe and has always been, I, I've been told from Raiola's side, uh, a view to getting the Haaland deal done um, to Madrid um, with the perspective of um, managing the relationship with Florentino Perez and getting discussions uh, going over taking Pogba to that, to that club. And throughout this process, I've been told that Pogba's preference would be to go to Real Madrid. That, that's his ideal option if it can be secured. Madrid have indicated to Pogba that they wanted to do it as a free transfer. I think we, we see a shift in the major clubs in football in that they're increasingly targeting top players um, on uh, in deals where they don't have to pay a transfer fee. We've seen it happen several times this summer and, and indeed Mino Raola being involved in, in several of those deals. We see it being a policy that Paris Saint-Germain are instigating and it's something that Madrid are using too. Um, so from that perspective, it makes absolute sense that now United are faced with losing the player for nothing or you get him to sign a new deal, um, that you have the conversations now because the, the, the option of selling is essentially gone. Um, so what Raiola can do and what Pogba can do by talking to Manchester United is find out what the market value is, how high are Manchester United prepared to go to retain the player, um, which is valuable information to be able to take to any other club that decides they want to pursue a pre-contract agreement or pursue the deal in the summer. Here, here is what we've, we've been offered. Here is what we have on the table for Manchester United. We would like you to match that or better it. Um, it helps from a, a bargaining position for them. I think United are still chasing here. Um, we know that Manchester United have been looking at replacements um, for Pogba should they lose him again for the second time um, without transfer fee. Uh, and, I, and I think you're right to, to note that Cristiano Ronaldo's arrival and the, the amount of money that's been put and added onto the wage bill at Manchester United through this pandemic period and through this period in which the Glazers have faced supporter protest and they've responded by handing the supporters the biggest present of all, um, which is bringing Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo back to Old Trafford. That sets the bar higher and it, and it says to other players, this is how high Manchester United are prepared to go on wages. Um, okay, we recognise that Cristiano Ronaldo is the best player in the world, but if you're prepared to pay him that much, then I want a significant step up in my salary if I'm going to to stay here. So I think this is still a very fluid situation, and um, and I think it's still very much the case that Pogba has control over his own destiny as long as one of those other 
major European clubs are prepared to um, offer him a contract that he's satisfied with uh, at the end of this season. Apart from money, Duncan, there's also a question of ego here. Um, Pogba obviously was arguably the star player at the club until Ronaldo's arrival. Um, if we look back to when I think, Neymar... I think, he'd, I think he'd lost that, Ian. I think he'd lost that to Bruno Fernandes. Um, but I, I get your point. There is a there is an issue Oh, no, of... I mean by reputation rather, rather than actual production and <laughs> producing good performances because we know that he's certainly underperformed uh, in his time at Manchester United. Yeah, I, I think performances, but also, I mean, I think a good judge here is the way that um, Manchester United's social media department works. We've seen this extraordinary focus on Cristiano Ronaldo since they signed him, tweet after tweet, um, Instagram post after Instagram post, um, lots of stuff on the club's website. And, and we know why that is, because that he is the biggest name in football and they're exploiting that. But previous to Ronaldo coming in, Bruno Fernandes was the one they were focusing on and, and the name they were pushing because he was the, the guy who was performing on the pitch. So he kind of kind of taken over from Pogba as the, the star of the team from Manchester United's perspective and from the supporters' perspective. But I think you're right to say that that, that ego element is very important when you're looking at um, this cadre of player and certainly uh, when you're looking at a personality like Pogba's. I think um, I'm reminded, Duncan, of the situation which developed between uh, Neymar at Barcelona and Messi. When Neymar left for PSG, it was because partly uh, he didn't want to live in Messi's shadow anymore. He wanted to be the star attraction. So going to PSG allowed him to do that. And I'm also thinking in terms of finances, um, the legendary parity clause that John Terry had in his contract at Chelsea, uh, where if a player came in and was being paid more than him, the club would automatically have to upgrade his contract to at least the same, if not more. So that's what I mean about ego. It's like you, we both know footballers. You know, they they know their value, or at least they think they do. And if they think they're the best player at the club, then they will demand to be the best paid player at the club. Uh, this is true. Um, I think there's also an element here which we haven't talked about, which is how Manchester United perform in the field. Um, I think because we're talking about ego, it hurts Pogba when he's criticised and it hurts Pogba when people say, look, you're not winning anything on the field with this team that you're supposed to be driving. And, and directing and, and you were brought in to be the, the the main man within. If the arrival of Ronaldo, the arrival of Jadon Sancho, the arrival of Rafael Varane into the Manchester United team, if that, that huge expenditure and the, and the building of one of the strongest squads in European football results in United winning trophies, Pogba being a pivotal part of that, and being credited with being a pivotal part of it, which is what we've seen in in some of the early Premier League games and a lot of focus that he's he's produced more assists um, in those four games in the Premier League this season than he managed in the whole of last season. I think that helps Manchester United's case because you you, you feed the ego by seeing Pogba 
coming away from a season with trophies, major trophies, and and the you know the pleasure that brings to him of uh, of performing at the top level, which he's used to doing at his previous club Juventus, and and is used to doing with his national team. Well, after um, the result against the young boys of Bern, um, Paul Pogba probably won't be very happy with the uh, prospects of Manchester United winning the Champions League this season. It's only one game, of course. However, we did see repeated mistakes, Duncan, uh, that we've seen many times before under Olgan Solskjaer, uh, not just in Europe, but in the Premier League as well. And of course, as you said, Pogba is someone who is fiercely proud uh, about his career and wants to win trophies. And so far, those have been sparse at Manchester United. Uh, do you think that's going to have a big influence on his decision? And also, um, just give us your view on uh, the performance against young boys, because it was one of the shocks of the uh, first round of games in the group stage. Yeah, I, I think what we've seen, I think you need to broaden it out to what we've seen from Manchester United so far this season. Um, they are top of the league, which is quite remarkable given the performances they produced, although you have to say that they haven't yet faced um, a strong, uh, you know, one of the opponents that you would expect to be competing for major titles this season. They played four games in the league. They played Leeds United, Southampton, Wolves, and Newcastle. I think only one of those performances was completely convincing and and in control, which was the Leeds United game, who are an opponent that they've they've beaten comprehensively in the past because um, they match up quite well against United, uh, Manchester United, in the sense that Bielsa plays that man marking system, plays very aggressively. It opens windows for. United to score in the counter-attack, which is what they've always been strongest at under Solskjaer. Southampton, um, poor performance, come away with a draw. Wolverhampton game, they somehow managed to win it. Well, somehow, well, they won, they won it because Paul Pogba was excused the red card challenge and uh, they score from uh, from the, the fallout from that, uh, that challenge. So that should have been, at best, a point ends up with three and the Newcastle match while an amazing feel good um, end to it um, you have Ronaldo coming back and scoring his two goals there are lots of elements I think in that Newcastle match from what we've seen throughout Solskjaer's reign which is difficulties breaking down teams who play defensively and and don't um, open themselves up to Solskjaer's side um, difficulties of creating goals you have you know joe willock um failing to go down in the box when he's when he's taken out by bruno fernandez for a rash challenge in the area i think if he'd gone down there that's a penalty to newcastle early in the game you look at the the two ronaldo goals both pretty much dependent on the goalkeeper making bad errors um to let them in yeah and newcastle had several chances on the break so it was wasn't so different from what we've seen throughout the Solskjaer reign but with the addition of one of the best players in football who scores the goals 
um, and you end up winning that one. So you, you, you do expect because of the recruitment that United have made that they will be better this season. They've got, according to the CIES Football Observatory, they've got the second most expensive squad in world football um, in terms of transfer fee commitments um, made to put that squad together. The only club who have spent more are Manchester City. Um, they have a higher net transfer spend than any club in the world post-COVID. So they've taken advantage of the pandemic and their basic financial strength to, to, um, to boost the squad in a way that other clubs haven't been able to do. Under Solskjaer, uh, since he's been manager, they've now spent over half a billion euros on transfer fees alone. Let's forget about the, the salaries and agents commissions we were talking about earlier. So there's been a, a massive investment in players to improve that squad, yet we see the same pattern of mistakes coming from the manager. And the young boys game was, was a cardinal example of that. Um, they go a goal ahead. They go down to 10 men because of a, a stupid challenge from Aaron Wan-Bissaka, um, losing control of the ball and, and going heavily onto an opponent's ankle. You know, 10 yards from the opponent's area, absolutely no need to do it. They get to halftime, a goal up, and Solskjaer decides that the, the way to hang on against a team who he has far better resources in also has the advantage of making five substitutes because they still have a five substitutes rule in the Champions League is to put on Rafael Varane, move to a back five, sit deep, and time waste. Um, lots of elements of that in the, in the second half. It, it's the kind of football that Newcastle United play. It's a Rafa Benitez, Newcastle United tactic, a Steve Bruce, um, Newcastle United tactic. Uh, there was the United only managed two shots in the entire game against young boys. The second half, they had not a single shot on goal. Um, second half, 69% possession for young boys and, and 11 shots from the Swiss. Um, and, and Solskjaer contributes not only by making that change, but by his substitutions. He brings on Lingard instead of Mason Greenwood when it's clear that... Uh, <laughs> adding pace and an effective, a very efficient striker would be more advantageous in that situation. Doesn't put any link in um, to Ronaldo. He admitted himself that he, he probably made a mistake in not getting a midfielder higher up in support of Ronaldo in the second half of the game. And uh, and, and as part of his time wasting, he brings Ante Martial with, uh, with injury added time still to play moves Lingard into central midfield and Lingard in central midfield makes a mistake where he, he um, puts the ball in, takes out that, that deep Manchester United defence and lets young boys score a second. We've seen this from Solskjaer time and time again. Tactically, he's not at the top level. His in-game management is very poor. We've talked about all that money that's been spent over half a billion uh, euros on transfer fees. It's a shame for the Glazers that they can't spend 100 million to teach Solskjaer how to be an elite level coach. The th point is that's never going to change. They're always going to be handicapping themselves by having a coach who makes bad decisions in these games. And, and it's now a question of whether 
they made the squad so good. There's so much talent in there that they win a trophy, not because of Solskjaer, but in spite of Solskjaer. Two things, Duncan. Um, first is you referenced Joe Willock not going down in the box, and I was speaking to a Premier League head coach who mentioned that particular incident and said to me, yeah, Joe Willock, he's no Jack Grealish. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also, I find this strange with Solskjaer. He's very risk-averse. Now, I remember chatting to Sir Alex Ferguson many years ago um, about what you do in in-game management when you're in the lead with you know a few minutes to go. And Ferguson regularly put on Solskjaer and pl- to stretch the game. So they would play an out ball uh, to Solskjaer, who would probably have gone wide in order to not just take up the time, but to provide a threat and possibly, of course, another goal. Yet Solskjaer does the opposite. Even though he was part of a team that would counter and stretch the game in the last few minutes if they were ahead. And it's like he's never learned from, you know, the, the, the being at the feet of the master. So I think this is something that separates the, the very top coaches from the rest, is they are able to read what's happening in a match and they're able to come up with rapid solutions and they're able to change the game. Um, Solskjaer doesn't have that. He's demonstrated that he doesn't have it time and again. And I don't think it's any coincidence that of the 11 Champions League games that he's managed, and that's his career total, um, remember, Manchester United managed to hire as manager of a club that has had that half billion spent on it without winning a single trophy under him. Someone who had no experience of coaching in the Champions League, whose previous jobs were at Molde and being sacked by Cardiff City um, for having them at the bottom end of the of the championship. Um, so he's lost seven of the 11 games in, in, that he's, he's managed in the Champions League. He's four wins. And every one of those wins, he's had a penalty. Um, interestingly, he was talking about the defeat last season to Istanbul, Bashak Shahir, that eventually cost them a place in the, the knockout stages of the, of the, uh, of the Champions League. And, and saying that Bashak Shahir game, we're going to make sure that's not going to happen this season. A few days later, exactly the same thing happens. They lose to a team that they should not be losing to with that depth of squad, even with 10 men. Um, it, it's the, the options he is taking are the wrong options to take advantage of the depth of talent he has. As you say, uh, an obvious thing in that situation is to to put a forward on, to put some kind of creativity in in order to make the other team worry about what you're going to do when you get the ball. If they know you're so deep and they know that you're not able to get past the ball through the midfield and get it anywhere um, dangerous near the opposition goal, then they can push higher and higher and put more pressure on you. And eventually the odds are the ball goes in the net as it did with young boys last night. Look, there's so much of what's happened with Solskjaer, which is about 
renewing the past and this association with Ferguson's era and the idea that he is a, a Ferguson type manager and does things in the same way as, as Ferguson does. And eventually that's going to pay off with a return to the Manchester United glory years of, of Ferguson. But so many elements of what he does are so divorced from how Ferguson operated as a coach. The way they play in these kind of games, as you say, he is he's very risk averse, tends still to be dependent on counter-attacking football. It's not, you know, glory, glory, Manchester United that he's talking about on such a regular basis. He came out after that game last night, blamed a young referee um, for not giving a penalty to Ronaldo in the second half. And, and said it looked like a well-earned point and a good point in a difficult game. C can you imagine if Louis van Gaal, David Moyes or Jose Mourinho had come out after a, a Champions League defeat at, uh, uh, at the Swiss champions, uh, having moved to a back five and not having a shot on target. And this was the return from that game was the lowest, fewest shots in a Champions League match since Manche for Manchester United since 2004. Can you imagine what would happen to Moyes, Van Hal, or Mourinho if they said that looked like a well-earned point and a good point in a difficult game. It doesn't seem that long, Duncan, since um, the Manchester United faithful were chanting attack, attack, attack during Van Hal's uh, reign at the club. Um, but of course... Uh, the precious one, as you like to call him, uh, has definitely got more leeway uh, with the fans, uh, all based on one goal in Barcelona in 1999, it seems. Uh, away from Manchester United, Duncan, uh, Chelsea recorded uh, a win in their first Champions League game. Romelu Lukaku scored again his first Champions League goal for Chelsea. Uh, he's made quite a, an entrance you know, on his return to the club. And at the moment, we understand that the club are in discussions with Anthony Rudiger's representatives with regard to a new contract. Much like uh, Paul Pogba, uh, Rudiger is in the last year of his deal. And they are asking for £130,000 per week in terms of the upgrade on his deal. Uh, we also believe that Rutger would prefer to stay at Stamford Bridge rather than leave. However, um, again, he wants to be remunerated uh, in a way that he feels that uh, befits uh, his senior status of squad. Here on the Transfer Window podcast, we reported consistently and first, of course, uh, Chelsea's interest in Jules Koundé. Uh, however, it was decided that the transfer fee was too high for the 22-year-old international and they would wait until next season. But of course, they're now a centre-back down with the transfer of Kurt Zuma to West Ham. But they still have an impressive defensive lineup, Duncan, and Rudiger himself has thrived under uh, Thomas Tuchel, um, his form, and probably more importantly, his consistency. Yeah, he's becoming a, a, a key player for Tuchel. Um, big difference in the 
in his uh, appearances. He made just 19 Premier League appearances last season, missing a lot of games under Frank Lampard. Um, this season, he's played all four games, plus the Champions League. Um, an important role against Zenit last night, one tackle in particular, which he... Uh, he ended up celebrating. It was it was so important to uh, to Chelsea getting that result. You can understand. You, you got to love celebrating a tackle, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something there's something quite. There's That's very old, who, old school. Played in defence for a lot of his uh, his extremely mediocre football career. I, I appreciate defenders who take pride in uh, in stopping tackles and celebrating uh, briefly in front of the the crowd, but he. He is, he's one of the players that that Chelsea and Marina Granovskaya were looking for um, an improvement from by hiring Tuchel because they were getting a, a German manager in to to work with a German speaker, and, and I think they've they've clearly got that. Um, Tuchel does want to retain him, um, and is pushing the club to do so. If they can get the Kunde deal done, either in the January window or next summer, um, then you've got yeah, you've you've got a a pretty strong cadre of defenders to work with um, in this system, which has already proved extremely um, resolute and and hard to break down for opponents. Um, they thought they were going to get Kunde done. Kunde wanted to join Chelsea. Um, as we uh, reported on the podcast, the, the personal terms had been agreed uh, some time in advance and the expectation from Kunde's side was that Chelsea would be able to complete once they'd uh, sold Kurt Zuma. Zuma was initially offered to Sevilla uh, as part of the deal and Sevilla were interested in doing that, but Zuma did not want to go to Spain and preferred to, to stay in English football. Um, and again, as we reported on the podcast, Sevilla uh, asked for more money because Chelsea had uh, had left the deal beyond the, the 20th of August and let it run into the last week. And in fact, the sporting director has, has talked on record about all of this. Um, he confirmed that there was there was one club that couldn't like the look of. He said it was Chelsea. Um, he said that they had one uh, and, and one only formal offer that they got on the the last um, Wednesday of the second last week of the window, which wasn't sufficient for them because of the, the delay. And he said, I spoke to the player's agent a while back because as the end of the window draws nearer, the harder it is for a player to leave. We gave them until the 20th, but we listened to this offer, even though it arrived on the 25th. We went back to them with a counter offer that expired on the 28th and they didn't reply. So Chelsea basically backed away because they thought they had the player at an agreed free with Sevilla. Sevilla upped the money having seen um, how much they'd taken for Kurt Zuma, which I think was more than Sevilla expected, and used that um, delay to the end of the window. Uh, Kunde wasn't happy with that. Um, and was left out of the team for a little while, but he's back in playing again. Um, that's the strategy for Chelsea, which is get pick up as many of the top young um, players in, in European football and uh, and add to the squad. And they saw the opportunity to do Kunde. They got it close 
but they, they couldn't quite finish with Sevilla in the last window. Uh, no disrespect intended here, um, but Kurt Zimmer chooses East London over Seville. I mean, come on. Has he ever been to Seville? One of the most beautiful cities in the world. <laughs> anyway. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps there was more money on offer in East London than there was in Seville. Oh, I suspect, I suspect there probably was, yes. Um, I'm not sure that the compensation of having to, uh, yeah, play for West Ham is necessarily worth the cash when you could be spending your time um, in such a wonderful city. Anyway, uh, that's just an aside. Uh, just quickly, Duncan, um, so far we've had four games in the Premier League. Chelsea look to be quite formidable. Uh, obviously, Man City, Manchester United uh, are very good as well. Where do you see Chelsea in terms of trying to win back the Premier League title now that they have strengthened uh, their squad and will challenge, it seems, um, better than they have done in uh, the last couple of seasons i think i think they they have a a very strong chance this season they've got a coherent system um they've added in important areas they have players like kai havertz who've who've gone through difficult initiation periods in in the premier league and now look like important effective adaptable players um, they have a very strong defence, and and you know you you look at that Liverpool away game where they went down to ten men um, at one of the the most difficult stadiums to play at in world football, and and were pretty much in control in the second half, um, and you know got their one one, and were able to fashion a couple of of chances um, with. The, the setup they used and you know contrast that with with what was happening at at young boys last night um obviously manchester city have the the most powerful squad they have the difficulty of winning back to back which pep guardiola will tell you is always one of the hardest things to do and he didn't get the center forward he wanted i think liverpool look to have taken great advantage from having some of their key players get a proper rest in the summer. Um, they are playing their high pressing game far more often now and more effectively. Um, and, and the players know each other because there hasn't been a lot of um, change in that squad. So I think they, they are powerful contenders and Manchester United have a, a supremely deep, they've got, I think they have the deepest squad now. Um, they have an immense bank of attacking talent. They've had a huge amount of money spent on the defence. Um, they have, uh, well, they're paying more money to their goalkeepers than anyone else and, and have one very talented um, goalkeeper who, who, not surprisingly, Solskjaer has, has turned back to as his first choice. And then they have Dean Henderson who's being pushed as as England number one, so they've got a depth there. But I, I'm not sure that they can overcome the handicap of, of Solskjaer. It's one of the interesting things is to watch this season and, and, and see how much the additions of Varane, Sancho and Ronaldo um, add to their points total just because of the sheer quality that's been added to the squad. 
and whether that's sufficient to get past um, Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City when the manager will continue to make mistakes. That, that much is guaranteed and he'll make more mistakes than any of his rivals because he's not as good as any of his rivals. It is the case United have 26 full internationals. Very impressive, if not the performances. Let's move on, Duncan, uh, to the regular section of the first podcast of the week, which, of course, is Hero and Villain. And you have an interesting uh, hero to talk about. Yeah, yeah, Hero of the Week, Harvey Elliott. who has made a very strong start um, to uh, to the season with Liverpool, um, chosen by Jurgen Klopp to start against Chelsea at home, which is a a, a real mark of his faith in the player, um, and then uh, suffered a, a horrible ankle dislocation against Leeds United when um, Pascal Strauch uh, caught him. Um, took the ball and then and then landed on on his on uh, Elliot's foot with his follows through, was red carded for the challenge and um, Elliot, who you know despite all of what had happened to him, um, went on social media and said wasn't his fault whatsoever. Neither was it a red card, just a freak accident. And I think that's a, a real mark of maturity in a in a teenager and 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 someone who's suffered such a serious injury to to come out and and say that uh, it would be much easier for him to to be angry or to remain quiet but Elliot uh, showed uh, showed character there well Duncan won the toss of the coin in terms of getting first choice this week so um I I was stuck with the villain uh, although I was going to uh, go for Robert Lewandowski as hero um for scoring his 18th goal in consecutive matches for Bayern Munich uh, against Barcelona last night. I could pick fans at the camp now for the way they booed their team. Um, and of course, Gerard Piquet was quite critical and saying how unhelpful that was. Um, and of course, we've noted all of Barcelona's problems, financial and sporting, many times on the podcast. However, England's finest, well, at least that's what we're told. Anthony Taylor, referee, uh, who is both a UEFA and a FIFA appointed uh, official, uh, was in charge of the game between Benfica and Dynamo Kiev. And he inexplicably gave uh, Dynamo Kiev's Dennis Garmisch a yellow card um, and set him off and then had to rescind the sending off because he realised that it was a yellow card offence, not a red card offence. So, um, as you said, Duncan, as we were off here, it was Graham Paul in reverse when he gave three cards to one player uh, in a World Cup tournament. So, uh, Anthony Taylor, I think, will be uh, the subject of much ribbing by his fellow referees at PGMOL um, for that and uh, deserves it basically. So, Anthony Taylor, you are this week's villain. This has been the Transfer Window podcast. 
if you want to engage with us, and we know you do, and we enjoy it, then please get in touch via our social media channels, which is at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Individually, Duncan's on at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. We're also on YouTube. Just search Transfer Window Podcast. We will be back later in the week. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Be well. Be well.